Welcome to the Indie Writer Podcast, where we talk about all things writing and indie publishing. Today, I'm excited to be talking writing about sex with Disha Filia. Disha Filia's debut short story collection, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, was a finalist for the 2020 National Book Award for Fiction, the Story Prize 2020-2021, the 2021 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, and a 2020 LA Times Book Prize, the Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies focuses on Black women, sex, and the Black church. Disha is also the co-author of Co-Parenting 101, Helping Your Kids Thrive in Two Households After Divorce, written in collaboration with her ex-husband. Her work has been listed as notable in the Best American Essay series, and her writing on race, parenting, gender, and culture has appeared in the New York Times, The Washington Post, McSweeney's, The Rumpus, Brevity, Dead Housekeeping, Apogee Journal, Catapult, Harvard Review, ESPN's The Undefeated, The Baltimore Review, Tonight, Ebony and Bitch magazines, and various anthologies. Disha is a Kimbilio Fiction Fellow and a past Pushcart Prize nominee for essay writing in Full Grown People. Wow, what a bio. Man, that was like a mouthful. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you. And thank you so much for being with us. I know we like don't really know each other, but I just feel so proud of you every time I feel like some, like I hear another way that you're succeeding. I'm like, Yay, WVU Press! Awesome! Yes, I know. I'm working on my um, my WVU Press one right now, but I still totally like tell people whenever because people will just like bring up your story and (laughs) or bring up your stories, and I'm like, I read it before it was cool. I'm totally like a hipster about it. (laughs) We're early adopter. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. So it is actually a little bit self-serving, I have to say, because the day that this podcast comes out is the day that my book on home comes out. And congratulations. (laughs) The protagonist in that book is a sex worker. There are sex scenes in the book and I'm nervous. So (laughs) I wanted to talk to you about it. I mean, why get nervous now? (laughs) I know. (laughs) (laughs) just nervous about reception um yeah so I just have some questions about that um whenever I talk to friends about your book I feel like the first thing people say like so I'll recommend it they'll read it and they're like there's so much sex in it I'm like yeah "Yeah, exactly (laughs) not that just kind of surprised and Mm -hmm. so I guess I'm wondering like did you go into the book like knowing that that would be the focus like knowing that it would be such a a sexy book or a sexual book? Well, you know, five of the stories were written. Um, well, let me think. Three of the stories were written, maybe about three, before I knew I was building a collection. So I wasn't really thinking of it, of any of the stories. Um, for, for for those few stories, I wasn't thinking about how is this all going to come together, um, you know, as a sort of like a choir of voices, you know. Um, or, or um, you know, how much sex is it going to be in total? Um, but the sex itself or like individual stories, um, I, I like to think of it as sort of organic to the stories. And so I really wasn't thinking about, um, you know, how much is, you know, for each story, like how much, you know, when people ask me, you know, it, how come there's so much sex? 
I don't know that you can write a book about the church and women and not have a lot of sex. And so if I'm obsessed with the sex, it's because the church is obsessed with sex in particular, um, you know, sex that it considers, um, you know, sinful, Um, you know, sex between people of the same gender, um, sex outside of marriage. And of course the church is obsessed with controlling women, particularly our sexual selves. And so, you know, I think it was organic to the book. So I didn't really, you know, think a lot about, um, you know, how it would all, how, you know, how much it would be. Um, but I, I think I became, I was self-conscious about certain, you know, parts and, um, you know, the one and what, this one wasn't even like a sex scene, but it was more, um, just sort of body humor. Um, there's a story called Dear Sister and, um, there's a character Tashida and I mean, she just is raunchy. She says things. And as I was writing and thinking about, you know, trying to sell this book, I was like, no editor is going to let me keep this, these comments, these things that she's saying. <laughs> but I was having so much fun. And it just, you know, and, and that's who she is. That's who this character is. I could hear her very clearly. And, you know, her humor is kind of like my humor. And so these are things she would say. And so she said these things. and. And it wasn't just that they were, I mean, it was, there's one line where she refers to a guy as rectal rooter, you know, and I was like, (laughs) never, never, never is that going to be allowed. (laughs) But the editor didn't, my editor did not blink at rectal rooter. People love rectal rooter. Yes. Um, So, so, you know, note to you and to the, to other writers, write what you want. And, you know, if you have to negotiate some things later, you know, but don't, censor yourself, you know, do everything you want and see what you can get away with. Um, (laughs) But then like you, you know, I I was kind of teasing you and I was like, oh, don't be nervous now. You you know, you put it out there. But I got nervous um, when someone who I didn't know reached out on Instagram and said, you know, they liked the book and and they wanted to, um, you know, give a copy to their grandmother for her birthday. And I said, oh, I'd be happy to sign it for your grandmother. Oh, she would love that. She's turning 80. And I'm like, (laughs) so I'm thinking about Rectal Rooter. I'm thinking about Eula, you know, the first story. So all of a sudden, every sex scene that I wrote, every, all the sexual content in the book came flooding. And all I could think was somebody's 80 year old grandmother is, is going to read this. And I was like, well, it's out there now, you know, <laughs> I mean, if she's got grandkids, that means she's had sex. Yep. So, you know, I'm assuming unless it was adoption, but whatever, you know, most adults have had sex. Right. Um, and something I say in the book that I have to remind myself, you know, our older women relatives, they, they weren't always a grandma or a great grandma, number yeah. one. So, you know, what we think they're going to be scandalized by they're scandalous themselves, some of them. And also, you know, they're still sexual beings, you know, and we don't like to think about that in terms of our loved ones. Um, but, you know, we think about ourselves continuing to be sexual beings into our 50s and beyond. Um, so why wouldn't they? And um, so the book, you know, I sent it out and she sent me the loveliest card back and she said she loved it and she was Aww. really proud of me. And, you know, she didn't say anything about the sex scenes. So it's, That's awesome. you know, we usually worry for nothing. And because just like you're saying, it's so organic to the story and mm-hmm. there's so much sex in it, but like the heart of it and the heart of any story is not 
like the sex unless you're writing erotica i would say right. like it's not yeah. yeah okay i don't know if i'm <laughs> articulating no, that right i get what you're saying so yeah like the first page of my book there's a line that's like show me that thick cock <laughs> and i'm like imagining every <laughs> like every single person i know reading that and like being like how am I going to read what, 400 pages? Like, that's what they're thinking of me this whole time. <laughs> Let me tell you. Let me tell you. First of all, pit, let's put a pin in this. I hate the word cock. Like, I, oh, I, sorry. I, I'm a dick, no, no, I'm a dick girl. Dick, I, and I think, <laughs> I think it's a racial thing, too. Okay. I do think so. We could talk about that. But um, <laughs> I will tell you, I've had multiple people tell me that they have sent my book to, like, the churchiest aunt they know, Right being messy, not warning them what the book is about or anything. Like, why would you do that to somebody, right? People have done that. <laughs> and they give them the book and then they get the text message. What did you send me to read? <laughs> but they keep reading. Right? I heard you say that in that they in the keep, Peach Cobbler. Right. So they're going to read yes. about the thick cock, but they're going to keep going. They're gonna yes, keep I hope going. so. <laughs> The cock will not stop anyone. <laughs> it never does. <laughs> so that was actually one of my questions because I remember mm -hmm. doing that bake along and you said that people give it to their aunties and they kind of clutch yeah. their pearls, but they keep going. Yeah. Have you yeah. had any, have there been any bad reactions and how did you manage it? Like, have you had anybody who actually got upset? You know, I don't know what it is. And maybe I give off a like, don't fuck with me vibe, but people don't bother me. You know, they mostly, they just leave me alone mm -hmm. and, um, and I don't read my reviews. So that helps. And so, you know, a lot of criticisms are probably in the reviews and I just don't read them. Um, but my daughter, my oldest daughter reads them and she'll share, you know, certain things with me and occasion and, and my friends know too, I don't care to hear the bad reviews either, you know? So mm -hmm. that's also something friends of Becca, if you read negative things, don't tell me, her book, yeah, don't tell like, what you, like, how is that helpful at all? It's not, it's not. Um, and so if, if anybody does that, they're really not your friend. Um, but, you know, people who kind of find certain things amusing, like that's perfectly fine. Like someone yeah. shared with me that um, this person wrote that they couldn't get past all the infidelity in the book. Mm. But, you know, like maybe one story could have infidelity in it, but three, and I was like, actually, I think six stories. <laughs> and then so you kind of, maybe you blacked out. I don't know. But, um, but you know, that kind of criticism, I look at it as, you know, it, the book isn't for everybody. Mm. You know, your book's not going to be for everybody. And that's okay. That's, that's perfectly okay. We're not, and I wish more writers understood this. We're not owed good reviews or readers. We're not owed any of that right you know i review books um as well and i feel like i don't owe anybody a good review but i do owe writers a fair review you know mm -hmm. and fair is this isn't for me but most people don't say you know this isn't for me they say it's you know something wrong with the book or whatever um but that's how i kind of i i would interpret any kind of um criticism of this is too much you know what it is too much for you because this mm. is not the kind of thing that you want to read. But clearly it is not too much for all of the people who love it. Yeah. yeah I love that. <laughs> it's not too much for me. You know, I think about what my friend um, Dantiel uh, Moniz said. She has a fantastic collection of stories out called Milk Blood Heat. And we were talking and, you know, that we get the question a lot. And you're going to get this question, like, who's your audience? 
And she says, I'm my audience. Mm. And I think that is such a wonderful answer. Uh, certainly before the book goes out into the world, you're its first audience. And yeah. so if you're laughing at the parts that are funny, and if you're like, yeah, I nailed that sexy, you know, if you're making yourself happy, I think that goes a long way. That goes a long way. And then, you know, it gives you kind of a, a context for any kind of criticism because it's like, okay, um, are they criticizing it from a craft perspective or is are they leading with their own hangups? And then you know what to do with that critique. And before it goes out into the world, I think you choose your readers carefully too. Like the people who might clutch pearls, those are the people I'm going to have as my early readers on a story right. with a lot of sexual content. You know, um, they are a reader that's kind of hit or miss that I might get them on the back end. Um, but when I'm establishing the story and when I'm trying to make it as great as it can be and write the best story I can write, that's not the reader that I'm going to turn to, you know, I'm going to send it to my filthiest friends, which is most of them. And <laughs> so nobody's going to be scandalized, you know, um, but even, you know, even your filthy friends, they can tell you if something is gratuitous, because I don't think any of us want to write sex gratuitously. And so, you know, so it's asking the right people. So how did you prepare those people you know? Like, how did you prepare maybe your daughter or? I didn't. Or the people, oh, you did it, okay. <laughs> I didn't. Um, and it never came up, you know, when, when I was building the collection, um, you know, I had several readers, um, including my agent, and, um, and they, you know, no one said anything to me about the sex. And I think because none of it is gratuitous, it all fits, it's all very organic. Um, and these are stories, you know, these are the people that, you know, it's a good fit between them and my story. So they're not distracted by the sex yeah, or put off by it. I feel like this is actually a good time to go to Vida or Veda. I'm sorry, I don't know. Oh, Vedia or Vedia Barnett from Twitter. Um, who asked, when writing scenes, I stay wondering how my readers will accept them and how much or how graphic is too much. Do you have someone read them to get a feel for how they flow? I have a few scenes I wrote, but I don't know how they'll come off to my readers. So I guess could, just could you talk about like yeah. how you how you make sure it's not gratuitous or? Yes. And that's such a great set of questions. I want to kind of break it down. So I have some thoughts about it. And then if we could go back and I want to make sure I answered all the parts. I think the main thing is to think, you know, motivation, right? Your motivation for writing the sex scenes. Um, you know, most of us aren't, you know, middle schoolers, so we're not just doing it for the cheap, the cheap thrill of it. There's some reason the sex is there. Um, so also motivation, what's the reasoning behind being, what are you worried about? What are you worried that, you know, people are going to think which people, what are their motivations? What's behind their critique? Most of us, I think, are worried about our relatives, you know, whether that's um, a parent, um, older relatives, or perhaps on the other side, our children, you know. And I mean, if it's children, if they're embarrassed by it or uncomfortable or whatever, they're just not going to talk to you about it. So, you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> they're, they're never going to say anything. <laughs> just like they're thinking about it, but they're not. They don't want to talk to you about it. So write about won't. it in their book, <laughs> right? So you don't have to worry about that. Um, and then, you know, if you're concerned about older people, I, I think again, it's recognizing 
you know, that one, you are your first and most important audience. If you're happy with it, um, it's like any other aspect of your life where you're happy with something and it may make other people unhappy or uncomfortable. And then it's up to them what they're going to do with it. That's a them problem. And I think that we think it's our problem as writers because we don't want to make other people uncomfortable. But I say, why not? I mean, you know, if because what they're uncomfortable about has nothing to do with me. You know, it's something that's going on with them. And maybe this is an opportunity for them to, you know, process some of that. But usually what happens is, you know, people don't want to do that. <laughs> and so they will project, you know, you've made them feel uncomfortable. And so somehow, you know, you've done something wrong. And so I think in that instance, if somebody does say something like, you know, I, um, I can't believe you did this or whatever, um, I think it's perfectly fine to say, you know, my book's not for everybody and it sounds like it's not for you. And I'm okay with that. You know, mm -hmm. I appreciate all the ways that you've been supportive of me and my writing. Um, I'm very proud of this story and, you know, I appreciate that you gave it a chance, but you know, it's okay. It's okay that it's not for you. Um, I don't think we ever need to apologize for, for writing honestly about sex in the ways we want to write. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, apologize or anything like that. Um, the other possibility, especially if you're writing something that's sort of like unorthodox or generally frowned upon, like infidelity or maybe kink or something like that, people may wonder about your own sex life. And as a writer, it's understandable that you wouldn't necessarily want to disclose those things, um, not because you're ashamed or anything, but because it's just personal, you know? And I think we have to remember that just because you write about sex doesn't mean that you have any greater um, obligation to talk about your personal sex life than a writer who writes about anything else. Um, and anybody who kind of expects that of you, you know, they're out of line and, you know, it's perfectly fine to, to say that. I'm trying to think, uh, let's break the question down to see what other. Well, I just want to say something about that for a minute, because I heard a great interview with the author R.L. Kwan on WMFA, where she was talking about autofiction and how people especially when you're a woman, especially when you're a woman of color, people are going mm -hmm. to assume whatever you write is you. Like Yes, because we don't know how to invent shit, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> and so I was wondering, like, have people assumed everything you write is, like, coming from your personal experience, or have you had people get too personal with you? Um, again, I don't know what it is. I give off a vibe, but people, again, don't bother me. I'm so thankful. Now watch, now they're going to bother me. But I think some of it is because there are nine stories and so many characters, they couldn't all possibly be me. And so right. I think that that creates a bit of a buffer from some of the, you know, the, the prying that people might um, want to do. And I've also been a little proactive. So when I, you know, get a question that's starting to veer in, in the, you know, around like how much of me are in the stories. And I will say, there's no one character that's me. There's no one character that's my mother. They're pieces of us. They're kernels yes. of us and kernels of our truths and our experiences that are throughout the book. Um, but there's no character. Um, in Dear Sister, I have four half sisters, but those are not my sisters. You know, those are characters that I created. Um, but the kernel of truth is, you know, we all had the same father. And when he died, there was the fifth sister that we reached out to. Um, but the rest of it, you know, I, I created that world and, and that family. The only time someone has almost kind of crossed the line, a reporter asked me 
how do you identify, you know, in terms of, and they give this long laundry list of possible ways I could identify. And they were asking, really trying to get at, um, you know, how I identify in terms of my sexuality. And I said, I identify as a black woman. And then there was just this awkward pause. And they were like, and that's it? I said, yep, that's it. <laughs> That's all you want to say? <laughs> you know, I, I, um, before my book came out, I was doing a, a um, conversation with Damon Young, who's a good friend of mine. And, you know, his book came out um, the year before mine, maybe even two years before mine. And, um, you know, he, he was like, you drive the bus. Remember that as a writer, when people start asking you questions, you drive the bus. You can... Um, answer or not answer. You can talk and start talking and maybe you, what you're saying doesn't even answer the question, but you're saying what you want to say. And he said, you know, most people won't come back and badger you. They will get the hint and let it go. He's like, but you stay in control of those conversations. And that really was really encouraging to me. And, you know, when you're new and you're debuting and all of these things, your inclination might be to feel like, oh, I'm just, you know, I don't want to upset the, you know, no, don't do that. You know, you, you have earned this place. You don't have <laughs> to just be happy to be here. Um, and so happy that you answer things that you don't want to answer. You absolutely get to control the conversation. Hmm, that's good to hear. Um, I think the other part of Vadia's question was about how do you know, like what the line is between too graphic or too gratuitous and mm -hmm. organic? Start with yourself, trusting yourself as the first audience. Are you comfortable with it? Um, and then choosing good readers. Um, and again, not your most prim friend <laughs> or aunt, you know, may, I don't know, find the horniest person <laughs> and they will give you a lot of leeway. But I, I think sometimes you, you, there's no objective answer to that question because what's not too much for me is going to be too much for someone else and that's when i think you have to accept you know this is going to be too much for some people i'm okay with that it's not too much for me but you know kind of inherent in some of these questions is this idea that somehow we need permission or approval or that we're that that the goal is to make sure that people aren't displeased, it's impossible. Somebody's going to not like it. Somebody's not going to be comfortable with it. And as hard as it is not to take it personally, it is so important to remember that that there's, you know, people are complicated. And so somebody who might decide to go on a tear about your book, they've got a whole history, they've got a childhood, they've got their present circumstances that we know nothing about that's driving that. And I always trust, yeah, they're probably going through something or they've gone through something that would cause them to f be this worked up about it. So that's kind of worst case scenario, but I don't own that. And then best case scenario is simply, oh yeah, it's not a good fit, you know, and, and be willing to do that. Um, I think even when we're not talking about sex, I think we have to get away from this idea that our book whatever it is, is going to appeal to everyone. Um, they even tell you that when you're writing book proposals for nonfiction, you know, do not say everybody will want to read this book. Like publishers want to hear that there are these targets, very specific. And so people will have reasons to, um, to, re to read the book. So if you have these very specific audiences in mind, the rest of the world is probably not going to be in interested 
it's not going to be their thing. And because some people are assholes, they can't just say that, you know, they, they, it's, you know, they turn it into a referendum on the book, on you, on your writing and all this other stuff. And, um, you know, we don't have time for that, you know, just don't, don't own it. So we've been talking a lot about other people's opinions, but maybe more from a craft perspective. Yeah. I feel like so much like sex and literature is like on one side or the other of the spectrum, like it's horrible, it's rape, Mm -hmm. it's horrific, you know, it's non-consensual or it's like magical and perfect and everybody orgasms at the same time. And, (laughs) you know, so could you talk maybe from a craft perspective about writing real sex? Yes. So I do think about the sex I've had, (laughs) you know, like trying to be in the moment. Um, And, you know, it's what I know best because I know myself best. Um, But I also think about the sex I've seen, the sex I've watched. Um, I think about the sex that I wish I could have, you know? And so there's some, there's a lot of longing in my book, um, sexual and non-sexual. And... So that's that's how I get into it is I really am picturing it. It, it you know I I read or was in a wor- workshop years ago that um, uh, one of the best ways to get away from writing a lot of exposition, which is something that I used to do and I think a lot of beginning writers do, um, especially trying to tell the backstory. You're trying to explain everything and you in present action just comes to a halt. And the advice that I um, was given was that if you think of your scenes literally as movies, and anytime you get into narration and exposition, it's like in a movie where the action freezes and the voiceover starts. And so you want to do that as sparingly as possible. And so instead, you want people doing things and saying things, and you want to be able to, you, you want the reader to be able to picture it. And so I took that to heart. And so I'm picturing the sex. And so there's a lot of memory. There's a lot of, you know, imagination. Um, there's a lot of trial and error, you know, and uh, trying to appeal to all the all five senses, you know, so obviously with sex, it's, you know, what do you feel? Um, but sounds like I, I really like the, you know, things that people might say during sex. Um, uh, in the story, uh, my story, Peach Cobbler, there's a line about, um, you know, this little girl, the character, main character overhears her mother having sex and saying, oh God. And, and it feeds the girl's imagination that it's God that's coming to her house and having sex with her mother. Um, but you know, (laughs) writing that and, you know, just imagining, yeah, she would, you know, this is a thing we say. So, you know, just trying to be in the scene as much as, as I can and visualizing it, but also, um, you know, smells and things like that. Um, And having to, so starting with, you know, what I know and what I'm familiar with and what I like, but then remembering my characters are different people, right? So I'm someone who is very um, odor averse. And so, you know, but I don't want every character to be like me, you know? So, you know, to imagine a character who likes um, sex that's a bit funkier than I do, you know? So thinking about those kinds of things. So the sights, the sounds, the smells, um, the tastes, you know, um, making it a fully sensorial experience. Um, I have very few like big sex scenes though. So there's a lot of sex in the book, but they're like more like moments and staging, you know? So in Eula, there's, you know, she's, 
uh, Carletta is going down on Eula and, you know, she says she's open like an altar. I love that line, but I could, I could, you know, so I'm, cause mm -hmm. I was imagining her, her knees, you know, kind of falling apart, that not falling apart, you know, coming apart um, and opening and just that openness. And so I think part of it too, from craft perspective is being open to the sensual things and the sexy things that are not necessarily graphic things that, that you know, that there's a subtlety too that, that comes into play as well. Um, how to make love to a physicist, you know, they're just like nerding out. And then he was I like, you know, are we going to talk about Rumi or are we going to get naked? You know? And so that felt real to me, <laughs> you know, cause and that's what was happening in the scene. Like I knew in my head, this is the scene where they have sex, but they're talking and then I was like, oh, wait, they got to stop talking so they can actually fuck. And so he, I kind of give him <laughs> that line, you know. So just going with the flow and, and putting yourself in the scene. I love that. Thank you. So I don't think we can really talk about the sex in your book without talking about the intersections with race. And I want to talk about... Cock versus dick? Are we? Is that... No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can start with that. <laughs> so in some ways, I feel like it kind of complicates some stereotypes because, you know, yeah. secret lives of church ladies. We think about people mm -hmm. who are prim and proper, but at the same time, they're like stereotypes and black women and girls are so hypersexualized sometimes. And I'm thinking about how in my book, she's a lesbian, she's a sex worker, and she does some things that affirm stereotypes like she's using men for what mm -hmm. she needs them for. She's like a tease or whatever. And so I'm wondering if you have any advice or any thoughts on writing sex and race in a way that complicates stereotypes at the same time that some people might read it as a Yeah, Yeah. And I've, I was asked that question before. Did I worry about, you know, people taking this, looking at the stories and feeling like they confirm stereotypes and it goes back to something I said earlier, which is, you know, that's a them problem. Um, someone who's determined to see Black women as um, stereotypes, archetypes, and so forth, I don't consider it my job to try and change that. Um, they're going to do what they're going to do. And, you know, Toni Morrison talked about how that's just not our job. Like racism just distracts from our creating and doing our work. And so like, I can't, I would just never, I just don't think about, I just don't give that much thought to people who don't have my best interest in mind and who are really, they're my enemy. Like I, you know, in this era, there's no more moderate, there's no more neutrality. And so someone that I would have to convince um, someone who, who wants to be convinced that Black women are people, essentially, because if you believe in stereotypes, you do not also think we're people. Like you can't, I, 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 that's a gauntlet that I throw down. I refuse to accept that if you hold stereotypes about us, that you actually see, see us as people equal to yourself. Um, and so I would never let a person like that distract me from my work or inform my work. Um, so I'm not thinking about them. I am thinking about black women who we, we know, you know, that said, I think about something my friend Tamara Winfrey Harris talks about. Um, she wrote a book called the sisters are all right, changing the broken narrative of black women in America. And, um, 
And that book and a conversation she was having with Black women about that book led her to write her next book, which is Dear Black Girl, Letters from Your Sisters on Stepping into Your Power. Because when she would talk to older Black women about you know, stereotypes about us, about Black women, they would be like, oh yes, that's horrible. And we aren't those stereotypes. But these young girls out here, you know, they're fast and they're this and they're that. And, you know, all of the slut shaming and, you know, you know, sex neg negativity, all of the things that we don't want other people to think about us. Some of us Black women think that about Black girls and, and, and it's harmful and it's hurtful and it's um, something we shouldn't be doing. And so the same thing, I know that women who, uh, Black women who read my book um, and I don't want to paint with a broad brush, and so they may or may not also be religious, um, might not be comfortable with how um, sexually free um, some of the characters are. And the freedom is in that they are unapologetic about doing things that we have been taught are sinful. And so it's like, you can do, you can have characters do those things, but they're supposed to feel bad about it. Um, or they're supposed to get punished. And so if these women can be free and happy and they don't get punished and they're getting to do what they want to do, I'm sure that someone who is played by all of the rules and who has lived in those binaries that the church teaches and all the restrictions and all of that stuff, you know, we don't ever say, huh, maybe I, sh I shouldn't have, you know, allowed myself to, to be so small. Instead, we demonize those women because you know, they're, they've disrupted our worldview, you know? So I wasn't really thinking about who wouldn't like it, you know, um, the way that the, the, the women show up um, and who would be inclined to, to stereotype because I really didn't, I really saw it as an opportunity for the women who get stereotyped to see themselves, to feel validated, to feel celebrated, to be heard, feel like they were heard. I love that. So something I've been thinking about a lot and that you just kind of touched on is how we don't, we don't like women who aren't perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know where I'm going with that, but I'm seeing that in early reviews of my book where like she's, she's selfish. She's, and she is in some ways, she has a lot of growing to do, but how many male characters do we see yeah. who are also selfish yeah. and <laughs> have growing to do and they do that but that's not like the critique i mean that was peach cobbler which is uh, certainly the most popular story in my collection got the most rejection when i was sending just sending stories out and when editors would tell me why they would say they just didn't understand the mother how you know that it didn't ring true that a mother would act this way towards her child so she wasn't a great mother but so that's a reason not to publish the story <laughs> And, and I really wasn't willing to spend a whole lot of time with her backstory. One, because it was not her story. It was her daughter's story. And two, I was writing from the perspective of her daughter. And as children, we don't know why most of the time, we don't know why our parents do the things they do. We don't know why they are how they are. And hopefully as we get older, we can learn more about them and understand their traumas and how they were parented and who failed them and, you know, and have some context. We can kind of see them as people, but when we're going through it as kids, 
we don't know. So it's confusing for us as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt like that was true to the story. Um, but yes, women are not allowed to, um, to be flawed, you know, without some sort of like, and you got, you can't, um, what is it like, uh, this idea that, that they are getting away with something, we're getting away with something. And, um, it's reminds me of, um, I think it was Charles Stanley, who's this like rate this pastor, this evangelical pastor, and he had a radio show and, um, it was him or somebody else. And they were warning parents against where the wild things are because this kid had been disrespectful to his mother. And then he gets rewarded by being allowed to use his imagination. How crazy is that, right? Um, and I think that that's it. Like the, 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 there's so much in the culture that's about punishing. We didn't even want this child to have his imagination, to be allowed to you know, be free in his imagination. And so you know, women who step out of line and in particular women of color, black women who step out of line have to be punished. There has to be some comeuppance um, because otherwise it's going to cause other women to think that they can step out of line without, you know, some sort of, uh, punishment, you know, and then where would, would be, where would we be? (laughs) 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 So I'm, I'm seeing if my eight-year-old is dick versus cock. (laughs) This is how we can end this conversation. I'm going to close the door just a second. (laughs) Okay. I don't know. It just—it feels racialized, and I—I I thought it was just me, but I've talked to other Black people about it, and um, and so this is not an official Black opinion. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there are Black people like myself who think of cock as such a—you know—it's it, it, always pink. It's white. It's you know, but you know, um, and so dick is preferred. Yeah. Okay, noted. noted. But if, if, you're, if, if she, you know, cock, cock to me gives me some characterization. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that is good to know. And the man that she's talking to okay. on the first page is white. So, <laughs> yeah, we covered everything. Why don't you tell our listeners what you're working on next? Oh my gosh. So this is a recent development. Um, I have been saying all along, like since I turned in my manuscript for church ladies in 2019, I was like, now I can finish my novel. Now I know what I need to do. Now I know where it was falling apart and how to piece it back together and how to make it stronger. And I started working on it um, and um, made the decision last year that I was going to approach it differently. And, and, um, it was going to be satirical, which it was not originally. And so I started working around that idea. And then it would just fall by the wayside like it had before. But what I've been doing a lot of in the last year is writing stories and essays. <laughs> so I thought finally this uh, last week, I t- was talking to my agent and I said, I'm just going to stop fighting it and I'm going to write another collection. Um, I'm not saying that I won't write that novel but I'm not writing that novel next. I know that that's not gonna happen because I'm just not drawn to it the way that I'm drawn to these stories. And so we did some brainstorming and um, you know, looking at some pieces that I already have and some ideas for other stories. And I think I can get another collection out um, and then maybe go back to that novel. I don't know what it is. And, and maybe I need to just abandon the novel and I'm just taking a really long time to do it. 
yeah, wait for but, you to be ready for it. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not ready yet to say that I'm not writing a novel, but I am saying I am not writing a novel right now. Um, and then uh, I have a television adaptation deal with HBO Max and we'll be executive producing with Tessa Thompson. And so got to get started writing on that. I have a co-writer now because I don't have TV writing experience. Um, so I'll be working with a co-writer. Um, so that's also on the horizon as well. Can we hear any more about the new collection or is it still kind of? Um, I Right now, and clearly things are subject to change. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at a mother-daughter theme hmm. and not strictly mother as in the person who is your mother, but grandmothers, maternal figures, um, because that was a secondary theme in church ladies that I had not intended, but clearly I was still working some things out because once mm -hmm. I turned the book in, I was like, there's a lot of mother-daughter stuff here. Um, so I started thinking about how there's mother-daughter stuff and stories that didn't make it into Church Ladies and stories that I've written since um, Church Ladies came out. And um, and I'm really interested in, in playing with that, um, but in some non-traditional ways as well. Um, I, I want it to be like Church Ladies where there are these distinct stories and distinct characters and situations um, and um, who are not me and my mother, <laughs> you know, yeah. but looking at a lot of different dynamics um, and looking at stories where the mother-daughter relationship isn't the story, but it is a, a facet, it is part of that world of whatever the story is. Um, so yeah, so I'm excited about that. I'm excited too. Um, can you tell us where to find you online? Yes, um, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm my name, Disha Filia. And on Facebook, I am Disha Filia Writer. Thank you so much. Thank you. Fun, fun, fun. Thanks for listening to the Indie Writer Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will subscribe to hear our future episodes. We want to thank the Writing Block community for your continued support. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or at writingblock.com, no K. Remember to subscribe, share, and tell your friends. Thanks, everyone, and happy writing.